Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, Comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Today's episode is going to be an enlightening one. Today, I got a good friend of mine I've known for many years, Dale Alsberry. And uh, Dale, he just brings over 20 years of experience in the field of information security with broad experience leading global diverse teams delivering innovative security risk management solutions in some of the most highly regulated industries, such as education, healthcare, finance, banking, and energy, of course. Now, Dale currently serves as the CISO at Litmus, helping to securely deliver innovative e-learning solutions, content, and integrated learning management services to more than 20 million people in 150 countries. Now, prior to Litmus, Dale led the cybersecurity program at Stride Learning, publicly traded e-tech company. We implemented a cybersecurity recovery and transformation roadmap resulting in 90% increase in NIST maturity within 24 months. Now, prior to Stride, he led cybersecurity strategy, engineering, and operations at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana, where he drove security innovation, risk reduction, cloud, mobile adoption, and value-driven cyber cost management across the enterprise. Now, Daryl also serves as a virtual fractional CISO and strategy advisor to a variety of organizations seeking to solve some unique challenges. And over the past two decades, Darrow has served in a variety of cybersecurity and IT leadership roles in small organizations and startups in the healthcare finance and sector. I can keep going on and on on your background, Dale, but welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to reconnect again. And congratulations, props on the success of the show. I'm just happy to be part of it. Thank you for inviting me, Josh. Yeah, my friend. So tell me, what has been new with you? Well, we my last few years, I've uh, pivoted from healthcare into the ed tech space. Years ago, as HIPAA was becoming the law of the land, and we went through the evolution of healthcare and the ACA, healthcare was a very interesting space to be. Before that, the um, evolution of banking and finance in the early 2000s and late 90s was a very interesting place to be. And I followed that, that desire to be part of the new, interesting development in certain industries. And EdTech has been that, especially as we've seen education really transform um, rapidly since COVID. COVID was really a, a kind of a sea change in uh, education technology in that industry. And there's been a lot of rapid development, whether it's children being moving into work, I'm sorry, learning from home and remote e-learning or gamification and learning and introduction of e-sports and using that to uh, facilitate and drive learning in younger learners, or it's the new really velocity push like with uh, Litmos I'm at now into helping people upskill and continue their education so that they can grow their skills and stay relevant. You've seen the metrics and you've seen the numbers that support the need for continuing education across a variety of industries and different types of jobs. And these ed tech companies and industries have been very interesting to be part of the last few years as we've evolved not only with how we as cybersecurity professionals support e-learning, whether it's for a, an eight-year-old child or a 68-year-old uh, professional who's looking to upskill and continue to be relevant in her industry for a few more years. So it's a very interesting space like in those others and, and makes um, the cybersecurity challenges interesting and fun. And uh, it, it really gets the, the gray matter spinning. That's what's been up. Wow, that sounds like a little bit different than what your past. So tell me a little bit more about your past. What did you do before EdTech type stuff? Uh, years ago, I'll tell the story. It's interesting to me and probably nobody else. Years ago in the college time, I was headed towards a path to want to be an accountant. I was doing bookkeeping and 
working with the numbers. And so I got to learn how the debits and credits flowed in a company. And one day we had a computer system and being the youngest guy there, somebody said, we don't know what's wrong with this here. You know how to read and you're young and we're all going to go home at five o'clock. So you stay here and read the manual. And that's where I learned to embrace the concept of RTFM, read the flipping manual. And I essentially became self-taught, learned how to fix problems in the code. And years later, you would call that the thing, the H word. But I learned to fix those uh, little problems in the code that didn't make it work like we wanted it to work. And lo and behold, I found out that I love doing computing and, and hacking and getting into the computers and making it do things unexpected a lot more than I liked balancing debits and credits or doing taxes. Uh, still to this day, I have somebody else do my own taxes. And so that turned into a journey, whether um, it started in the insurance industry and then in the early days of cybersecurity, developing pen testing skills and learning the attack skill set and learning how to think like an attacker first, I think helped me become a better defender later on in my career. I had some interesting times in the early 2000s when I was wearing that white hat attacker's hat and people would bring me and my peers and companies in to do things, whether it was working on a traditional penetration test or it was doing more social engineering work. I can't tell you the number of times that I was able to take a picture inside of a bank vault and send it to CIO or CEO and say, you can go ahead and write that check now. We got in. And it was the ability to understand how businesses work and how the money worked to know where to attack it and really to understand within an organization, whether it's a bank or it's a hospital or it was a car company, understanding how the information flowed and where the jewels of the kingdom were to be able to break in and use that attack set. And then I use those skill sets over the years to, to mentor others and join organizations and help them put in place the roadmaps and the defensive and detective postures that made them a stronger organization. Excellent. Some of your so background, one of the couple of our guests had talked about this and it's is getting an understanding of the business, thinking like an attacker and how does that morph in, into everything else you do in all the different industries and all. And you and I, I well, we've known each other 15, 20 years or something like that. When did we first meet each other? I think you hired a company. I was working for a penetration test at that time. And then we worked Together there, I worked with our, your team. Uh, I think you mm -hmm. were at a bank at that time, did some penetration That's testing for you. And then I think you and some of your teams participated in uh, some capture the flag and education things that we were working on as a volunteer basis. And then over the years, I actually had people that I that used to work for me that actually joined your team at that other organization. So it's been kind of back and forth. We've always seemed to uh, swim in the same deep seas. Nope. Fully pun intended. And, and so it was, it, it's been a great opportunity to work together and to, to help support each other as peers. Yeah. And I thought you worked at uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield forever. And everybody knew you at Blue Cross Blue Shield and you've been there for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I, I spent about 10 years at Blue Cross. I spent several years at Trace. I was at an insurance company before that. I went to uh, Blue Cross. I've been at Stride. I've done some work for not only as a consultant at that bank that you were at, did some penetration testing, did some consulting work in the years around things like vendor risk management and others, and have worked in hospital space. I had a long time ago, I worked for a, a hospital healthcare organization in Baton Rouge, and then most recently in the ed tech space. Like many people in this industry, I think we have career stops that may be a year, two, three years, and, and you solve your problems and move on, and others where you may stay longer, like at Blue Cross. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting. I remember you did some testing for us at this client I was at. And that reminded me when you said a picture of people in the vault, because I remember part of the team's objective was to put on janitor outfits and, and IT outfits, essentially, and walk in and say, we're here to fix the computer problems. And of course, there's always computer problems. So the staff was just like, oh, yeah, come in. Here you go. There's three or four of them right over here. There was no question asked. Look for badges. Nobody cared. It was just because the computers were down. You golly, you're here to save my life. And it was just I talk about a perfect storm, be able to do that social engineering and then take pictures from 
behind a vault system and all. And we did that. It's, it was a very interesting time in the career. During that time, we did a lot of social engineering. It was still young in the cyber, the evolution of cybersecurity as an industry and people's awareness yeah. on what to do and what not to do. It was very interesting. It gave me the opportunity to visit over 40 states uh, and do this kind of trade craft at different institutions. Uh, sometimes it was at governmental institutions, sometimes at finance, um, right. a few times it was uh, at power companies and each had its own unique challenges. It, it's quite an interesting thing to go into a, a law enforcement organization and to break in and take their data with their permission, of course, as a social engineering event and to show even those who are supposed to be the strongest and most vigilant that they too can improve. Yeah. No, and I think it's interesting wielding together all the possibilities in a cybersecurity program and the technologies and, and what you have to be familiar with. I think on one of my uh, shows, I would think it was the, the CISO series. It was like, what are the all skills you need to be to move up to those higher levels? And it was Excel and PowerPoint, which is <laughs> tremendous. I would take advanced power, power uh, PowerPoint and advanced Excel if I was you and you want to be a manager, you want to be an executive or say, and there's a lot of guys I know that are hardcore incident response guys or network security engineers, and, and they have that background and they have the idea of how to progress up, move up. And it's, I find it's the communication, your ability to put your thoughts together in a concise manner, which was mm -hmm. is the PowerPoint. And then they excel how to get to answers, how to actually uh, work problems in that, those areas. Oh, and absolutely. Business acumen, right? Yeah. I think that's, as you talk to others. And it's funny you mentioned PowerPoint. Earlier this morning, I was having a mentoring session with a wonderful young woman who is well on her way to making those steps and I believe will be in one of those uh, C-suite roles in the future. And was explaining to her the power of using PowerPoint and how to really leverage that in short, punchy communication styles to communicate risk and to be able to communicate with leadership the trade-offs, right? Here are my risks and here are my priorities. And if we need to prioritize something, you're fully informed on what those trade-offs are if we're making those decisions. I think that many of our PowerPoint skills will probably go by the wayside as we start to get the next generation of generative AI to develop those PowerPoints for them. I'm sure I'm not the only peer you've talked to who said, yeah, sometimes I might get a little AI help on making this look a little better because I spent many more years at the command line than I did at PowerPoint, but your point is well made. I, mean, I think the ability to communicate effectively and concisely in the business acumen, in the business manner, which you know could be PowerPoint or whatever, understanding your business and how to make that um, communication jump from a practitioner mm -hmm. to someone involved in business risk and business decisions. I think that's the key to making that last step is that communications to go from a practitioner to an advisor. Yeah. And one of the things I, I learned here is that training the next generation. So I'm big on mentoring. I, I have, mm -hmm. I've mentored many people. There's uh, at least one or two guys that I started off with 15 years ago. We're not even in the field of IT, let alone cybersecurity. And then now are full professionals. But one of the things that I noticed that they all had in common was just the desire to, A, to read, to be inquisitive, to go research, how to put papers of thought together. So if you're going to make these big decisions and you're going to tell senior management, I want to install Splunk and I want to do this and I want to buy these tool sets and I want to spend all this money. And in some cases, it makes sense. They're, they focus on the best mousetrap. But mm -hmm. I think in many ways, miss the whole bucket about the ROI, the risk reduction, the outcome of it, and put in those terms. And really, there's an impasse. Management doesn't know what that big mm -hmm. expensive thing is and how does that really relate. And the tech guys just really are focused on how do you find bad quicker, better. And sometimes good enough is all right. It does that. I, I don't need to spend more in that area. I would focus my dollars on another one that's weaker. So that whole balancing act sometimes uh, gets lost if you're too focused on the minutia of, of the job or what you're doing. I, I agree. Let's, I think we get caught up many times in thinking of best of breed and not thinking what's the need. What's the best outcome? Yeah. It's mm -hmm. not just best. Of breed. I can't tell you how many systems, and I'm seeing this now out of the 450 clients that we manage globally at deep seas, you can see it now. One of the major projects that come up repeatedly, you would think it'd be some advanced 
hunting project or it would be some advanced something. It's transformations. It's reducing online SIM usage storage. It's tool consolidation. It's they got 15 different tools. They went tool heavy. And now there's overlapping capabilities. They don't even report together. I didn't, you didn't even staff it right. They thought, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend all this money for this great application, this tool, and I don't need anybody to run it or do anything. And it becomes just a backup job once every once in a while somebody gets in it. So it wasn't staffed properly. It wasn't architected properly. And and this was repeated. I, I, several organizations where the SOC is down level from the security tool team. So the mm-hmm. security engineering team goes, I want to launch Zscaler. And then they go over to the SOC, go, we're going to just dump all the Zscaler logs into the SIM and you got to figure it out, right? Use cases or whatever. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, what? And they would be like this catch-all. Instead of the security engineering team saying, this is the control I'm trying to mitigate. And out of this control, these activities, like in Zscaler, this segment trying to talk to that segment or do X, Y, and Z, whatever the use case is, is bad. And when that bad happens, <laughs> it's going to send an alert to you. And I want you to do this when that occurs. Because the SOC doesn't know Im- intimately how all these tools work together. You're just throwing data sources at us. And it's made the SIM ineffective. It made it jump up in costs and re- uh, jump down in effectiveness because of that attitude. Uh, oh, I'm absolutely. sure you saw that, huh? I've seen it multiple times. I mean, going back where, like you, I've probably been through more SIMs than I wish to count, all the way going back to some of the old CA SIM days. But whether it's ArcSight, it's Splunk, it's Exabeam, or it's CloudTrails and GuardDuty, whatever your SIM basis is, you have to balance out the chatter. Right? Am I adding so much that I've got so much chatter that I can't focus on what's important? I gave somebody an analogy one time. It's kind of baking a cake. If you keep adding things into it, you're going to have a flavor you don't expect. And you can't really focus on what you want to enjoy. I think that's something we have to uh, be as leaders. We have to help that conversation. I don't want to put everything in there. I want to make sure that I've got some consolidation so that I've got better fidelity and I can act on it. Having it just be a tool set and I'm going to throw everything at it, right? Doesn't solve anything. Now, Now I've just got a lot of data that I can't do anything with because I don't understand what's in there, why it's in there and how I'm going to use it. And I've moved my experts too far away from it because they're focused on other things. And I think it's going to actually get worse with AI. They're going to just assume AI is going to take over and rewrite all this. And it definitely has some advantages. I write, for instance, the podcast descriptions here for my YouTube and my uh, podcast. And what I'll do is take segments of it, transcriptions of it, plus themes that I pulled out that are important. And I write these in uh, segments of text. And then I throw it in chat GPT and I say, write me a podcast description of 300 characters using these three inputs. Now, I just got locked out of chat GPT because instead of what I did is instead of doing the different segments of text and just saying, use these and this and that, I did capital and then everything was in quotes. So it looked like a SQL statement and it mm-hmm. locked me out and said, you said you've been blocked for security reasons. It was a capitalized and. The idea of AI and being able to become a better detective mousetrap is an interesting prospect. Generative AI is only going to be able, or at least now, can only generate off of the data that it inputs, right? Yeah. So there, there's a bit of garbage in, garbage out, and it's constrained by what it knows. It doesn't create. It doesn't have intuity, right? So there are some things that it's not going to hit on. How yeah. many times in your career or in the people who work for you, have somebody had a hunch or just said, you know what? I'm looking over here and I found something. I wasn't expecting it. The logic didn't tell me to go there. My experience did. And I think that's part of where generative AI is not there yet. AI is already baked into some of these types of sims to a a degree. ML type of AI, you can see it in Sentinel. You can see it in EDR and NDR products across the board that are using it. it. It's somewhat in there. But what you tend to see, at least what I see, is a normalization of all of that input of what it thinks it's seeing. And it decontextualizes the alerts. That's where I think you need a human or humans to be involved with your SIM, to have to care, feeding, and maintenance. You can't just turn it over to Skynet and hope that Skynet is going to figure out all the bad stuff. Skynet's never going to do that. Right. right? 
That's where the human who understands your business, back to my point a minute ago about having that attacker mindset, is understanding what's important to your business, where the crown jewels are, how the data flows and where the money's made. AI is not going to know that unless you tell it that, but it's always changing. Right? Yeah. A merger or an acquisition takes place, a reorganization takes place. That's data that has to be refreshed. And if we think we just plug in AI into our sim one time and it's done, we're yeah. sadly mistaken because well, an organization's not static. This is where I see some of the threats too, as well, is that you have, we all are on different pl social media platforms. Mm -hmm. I've seen a plethora of misinformation campaigns. I've seen videos that this is obviously uh, propaganda and different foreign propaganda. I saw one video where there's Putin walking into a room looking all powerful and everything. And it, this user on YouTube just hit 470 videos, has been doing it for a year and a half, and they're cranking out two or three videos a day. That's not someone just sitting home that is an actual troll farm. Mm -hmm. And that's all about influencing using social media. Now imagine the power of that, but turned from a criminal perspective and that gets into your phishing attacks and the social engineering from that. We get some stupid ones. Like I get a text message saying it's from my CEO, Chris and Semplar. Can you go buy these gift cards and send them? Okay. Knowing very well, he would never ask me to go buy Apple gift cards on the corporate card. And some of them are just so low sophistication. And they're easily spotted. But what happens when it's not? And it's actually, you have multiple business channels where AI, maybe some a, a voice interaction with a call center, or I could see just a number of different ways to increase your ability with fraud with some of these things. But also you got to realize who was that that lawyer who asked chat GPT to put like his rebuttal together and quote this and it was all wrong and it was referenced <laughs> in the wrong cases and just they and that's when they discovered he should be disbarred because he used chat GPT to do his legal. But I can mm -hmm. see where that would be beneficial just researching what law that is where and how to reference something better and put your case together. I could see where things like that may come up the same way. I, maybe in the future, I, you could see where AI can help make some decisions on spend on utilization of something or wasted resources doing this, where I couldn't see it just normally in the data patterns. I do. I think, I think AI has, it's got a positive place to play, right? I think it's got a role. And as we humans get better at training, at teaching it, yeah. its role will get better. And AI right now is a toddler. It's capable of doing some things. It can walk. It can look like a human. It can. It's at that infancy stage. It's going to grow. It's still recent. So as it grows and as we teach it, as its parents, as humans teach it, it's better. However, there are also bad lessons to your point about the troll farms and pushing out a lot of content. There's spoilage that potentially can happen within AI by people seeding and feeding things that are deep fakes or using it for nefarious purposes. I've already seen and talked to peers who are hearing the, instead of the text message or the phone call uh, impersonating the CEO, someone's actually got an AI voice that is now sounding like a phone call from the CEO or the CEO. How do you protect against that? That's a whole new level of awareness that you have to have your executive suite well, and others in tune to. You saw what they did in the Ukraine war. So when right before the Ukrainian offensive, they had a video released where it was a deep fake of Putin saying that they were mm -hmm. being overrun and they're pulling their troops back and they got sent out to that border region to incite panic. And, and so a lot of people fell for it because it looked like Putin, but you could tell like his forehead wasn't moving or, or something to that effect. So deep fakes, when I look at just some of the gullible people I know that fall for different videos, some of them are pretty outrageous. You, you really go, golly, how do you fall for that? But when you look at it, that from a phishing perspective, if you have some of those difficulties, some people have a, a difficulty figuring out what's true, what's not. Is that mm -hmm. really a bill for my for my utilities company, or is it that a threat and, and so forth? Mm -hmm. So if they get fooled, how, what do you think AI is going to get fooled from disinformation to as well? Probably to a higher degree, I would think, than humans would. I don't know. I think you would have AI bias just based on its inability to have a uh, emotional intelligence aspect to something. I do. And I think that it's something that has been playing on my mind. Going back to that Putin example and other developments that have come about is as humans, we're most susceptible in our weakest, most crisis relevant moment, right? 
you know, I'm in the South, so in a hurricane that's, or in a fire or in some other type of event that really puts everything on, on the hot seat. So think about the potential for how do we change the way we prepare for a crisis? As cyber professionals, we think about how do we prepare for that event? And I think that in the past, we've approached it very monolithically. We have a call tree. We call these people. We bring these in. Now, imagine you think about a, a battlefield example where you create uh, a situation where everybody has to evacuate quickly. And what is the opposing force going to do? They're going to pick them off as they run out. So think about an incident like that. It's not an orderly disbursement anymore or an orderly incident monolithically we need to think about. Now we need to think about how could this event get worse? If we follow that old prescriptive playbook and we're not thinking of the ways that AI and other type of vectors could make it worse for us. But maybe the initial incident was the precursor. And that's not the thing that they're really after. Right. I think that two-stage, multi-stage attack is going to be more prevalent in different higher-end technologies, whether it's in the mill sec or the government sector or attacking satellites and telecommunication systems. You have to think about it not just being a, a singular phishing incident, but how does that incident get worse? And how do I plan for the potential aspects for it getting worse? That was interesting at DEF CON 31, where they actually hacked a satellite. It was the first time in history that they had a true geospatial, not just the software and the hardware running at DEFCON, but they had a geospatial satellite and you were able to, and someone successfully was able to attack that. Now, I can't tell you that's the first time somebody compromised a satellite. I'm assuming it's occurred before. This was just the first time it was done in public. I'm sure that uh, you have NSA and, and you have several different other three-letter entities that hack sa satellites. Something tells me that would have been a big fat IoT device to target in my mind. If it was worth their time to target centrifuges. I can't imagine it's not worth the state actor's time to target uh, communication systems. And that, that was so cool, wasn't it, for Stuntnex? It was so cool where that the introduced malware that was so sophisticated that it knew the zero-day vulnerabilities within the Siemens controllers, and mm -hmm. instead of just breaking, it put it out of alignment in order to have a wobble so it would ruin any of the nuclear fission material that was in there that was used for enrichment. And so it would take them months to figure out what was causing these bad batches instead of just breaking it and throwing them out. I thought that was ingenious. The delivery mechanism was ingenious. It was just, it was, it was a really fascinating one to read about. It's a perfect example of understanding the case, the target that you're after, not just the trade route, not just hacking into a system and putting in bad code, but what do you hope to accomplish? It's understanding what you want to accomplish out of that that I think makes those types of events so impactful rather than just, well, eh, we wrote a few lines of code and it shut off some light bulbs. That and the amount of engineering it takes mm -hmm. to make that successful, right, is yeah. like going to the moon type thing. So to be able to take a enrichment centrifuges for nuclear enrichment and to be able to test that out and write the code and have to be repeatable. It has to be high quality. It's got to execute right. It's just, it's an, it's something to admire to do that. And I think those will continue to propagate throughout, throughout the world. One of my real biggest concerns, I think too many people focus on the latest threats and emerging everything, but they mm -hmm. do blocking and tackling horrible. It's like somebody who doesn't really know how to throw a punch or a kick really well, but they're looking at the swooping crane triple flip. And it's, you shouldn't even be thinking about that because patch management is horrible. You're not patching everything. You're only relying when you do on Microsoft. I've seen where they now transfer firewalls over from the security team over to the network engineering team. They never upgrade them. They never put uh, network egress filtering rules in there. So these things do not maintain themselves. The use cases have to be maintained. You can't buy a SIM without the people towards mm -hmm. maintaining it. It will work for about a week or two after the guys rolled off who implemented it. So you have to have a long-term strategy on data management Another thing, we have people that say they want to get a hold of their logging or their SIM, 
And they don't even have a logging strategy in the first place. They don't even say that here's the host that I have. These are the events I think are important. This is the stuff I want to collect from Syslog. These are my Linux machines. These are There is no logging strategy in the first place. It's And I think if you had one of those, you defined in targets what events are generated, what's shipped, what's not, and have a consolidated plan, you'll be so much more successful. But Oh, I fully agree. And in my experience as well is, if you don't have that data strategy, that logging strategy, and you turn it over to someone who's just going to keep the electricity on and hope that it was done right the first time, yeah, you're going to wake up one day, you're going to need it, and the content you need is not going to be there. Or if you don't have a security practitioner using that log management example, who is t- on the network team, not to pick on our network peers, but to, if it's a non-security organization that's running that primary defense, and, and pulling in those SIM records, then who's going through and making sure that you're not collecting too much private information? And that if you get a request for right to be forgotten from a GDPR regulated country, that's been integrated in your data strategy down there into your SIM. And that you're holistically approaching your security and privacy and compliance needs, not just thinking about it as a technologist. Yeah. And then seeing all three of these legs, you can have different service providers. Uh, there's an EDR leg of this. Any company that's mm-hmm. over 100 desktops definitely has to have an EDR product. So your CrowdStrike, your Carbon Black, Microsoft Defender has just come so far compared to, I never would have implemented Microsoft projects for, for products for security. They just, those two words didn't go together for the longest time. Now it does in many ways. So you have to have that EDR. The second piece, you have to have this NIDS uh, level. You got to be able to network monitoring. You have IOT devices, routers, switches, thermostats. All these have connectivity and they don't have EDR. You have to be able to see what's going on and transversing your network. The ability to pull a full PCAP if necessary and save that off to see what traffic is transversing. A lot of companies are missing that. They think they could just sit on the EDR leg. Uh, and then the third is the logging, is the visibility. This A lot of attack traffic, it's not, you're going to see at the network level. It's going to be an a, account abuse. It's going to be uh, attacks at the application level. So you got to be able to log activity and what's going on and getting your arms around identity access management. Most of what bre- uh, breaches I find, one of the problems that's always there, every incident I'm on, is some failure to handle identity right. Your privilege access management is not there right. They don't have secure desktops for their admins compared to uh, what everybody else does. They don't have jump hosts where you would put in access control lists on your routers and only allow specific IP addresses coming from your jump hosts. That way you you can secure the jump host with MFA and everything internally. And that's your uh, uh, LAN admin or your network administration network for that. Some mm-hmm. people don't know to do that or invest in that and don't realize how that is the key to opening everything else. We had admins I've seen using the administrator account to change or to check their email and so the, or their domain admin account to check their email. So when they click on a phishing email, everything executes in domain admin context. And so just those kind of breakdowns seem to cause more problems than anything. And they seem to be overlooked because some people look for the more sexy AI. They, they talk about mm-hmm. stuff like that, but they're not even doing the basics. And it's almost the, the three or four shows I've had on AI, I've had a couple of experts in, in the, and they said, look, if you want to prepare for it, that's great. What I would be doing now is just concentrating on clean data sets and where mm-hmm. your data is at and what is it and where is it coming from. And yeah, clean data sets are the key to any ML model. If it's all over the place, you, you're not going to have much of a benefit from it and so forth. Is that kind of your thinking as well? I it, it, Part of it. You touched on something that's near and dear to me and around identity access management. I am. I can't recall an organization that I've worked with, either a consultant or as uh, an employee, that didn't have room to approve IEM. And it is most more frequently than I think that many of us want to admit, it, it's an area that does need attention and improvement. How many times have you seen an organization like, that's a weakness? It, it takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get IEM right. It involves pulling in people from other areas, whether it's in IT or human resources. It truly is one of those functions. We say security is everybody's responsibility. IEM is where the rubber meets the road. It does take an organizational-wide commitment to it. And no matter how much IEM you have and other tools, you can buy best of breed, this, that, and the other. If you've got 250 service accounts with interactive login that have no owner, 
that have nobody knows why it's being used and there's no MFA on, now you've created a massive backdoor. Or if you have put all of your IT group as domain admins, and now you've got another problem. So over-permissioning, I think there's still validity to your point of the basic blocking and tackling. And many times it starts with the principles around IM. If you get that, then you build some of the foundation around blocking and tackling so your tools are effective. Hey, have you ever had something that you'd like, I mean, you step back, that was pretty cool when that happened. I had a a client we were at in uh, the New Orleans area. They're a um, manufacturing uh, company. And I remember we were talking to them about doing a security assessment and what can we do and so forth. And the guy just arrogantly go, could you really hack in anything? Here's a desktop here with a regular user. You could just hop on this and just hack our now. He was making fun of us. It was not a serious challenge. He was an IT guy. This was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, 12 years mm-hmm. ago. So it wasn't as a mature cybersecurity market as back then. And he was challenging me to break into this computer and what, what could I see? And I said, well, I don't know about breaking into the computer, but I'll, I'll take a look at what controls you have on the computer and what makes sense and see what I could see. And so the first thing I did, and this backs up your story on identity access management. First thing I did is get to a command prompt and I do a set and I look for the environmental variable for local ho- uh, logon server. And then, so I go to the sysvol, UNC over to the sysvol server, uh, share on that domain controller and look at all the logon scripts. And I saw HR and I saw where it was mapping logon scripts for the HR people. And I just UNC'd over to that share and it wasn't secured. I got in and literally had the payroll file in front of the guy and was able to show him. So this took no, no tools. There wasn't a patch problem. I didn't exploit anything. It's all living off the land. All I did was look at the domain controller where I was pulling my, I knew that logon scripts are there. I knew that's where there'll be separation between departments potentially. Here's, I needed to know where HR and where finance access their files. And that mm-hmm. logon script told me it was available to everybody. And then when you connect to it, there should have been a permission group that didn't allow the all users to connect to the HR share on payroll, but it didn't. It was misconfigured. So you just went, I went through. 10 different folders that just access and I had access. And then the last one, nope, full access went in and there's where all the payroll files. So that's you know, an example of identity access management connecting to the business directly. It, it's funny how IM can be, it, it's so often overlooked or it's seen as being so complex. I can't solve the problem. Let's move on to something I can solve. It can be difficult, right? Especially in a large organization. But we live in a day when it's still, it's a head scratcher to me that something like a pass the hash attack. Still works. Yeah. <laughs> How's that? Really? Folks, we haven't gotten past this yet. Come on. That, that's just a desire to do the right thing. Think about th- something as simple as a business email compromise. Someone gets in, they, they give it a business email compromise. Now the threat actor has the ability to go in and look through data and do their mapping and do their recon. Recon is that reconnaissance phase of an attack most often occurs not because of a vulnerability or something else, even though those can be at play. It most often occurs because we didn't do a good job of securing the access. Yeah. Point blank. Overlying the business requirements with technology and uh, permission sets for these accounts. Look, go look at any of the uh, websites that you use for uh, cybersecurity here. And look at the vendors out there who still have problems where their default IDs or default passwords within their systems. There was one that just announced last week. Really, folks? This is where we're at in 2023? Yeah. So back to your point, AI is great. And some of the new fan, the new fancy stuff, the, what was the line from the movie, The New Hotness? Yeah, that's great. But it's the, the basics still are biting us in the backside, even in 2023. No, yeah. Configuration management seems to be the big problem. You have S3 buckets configured for uh, global readable. You have, that was Department of Defense had messages Mm -hmm. leaked over S3 bucket. And then that kind of stuff, just because you move to cloud does not mean, I I had a lot of customers were like, we moved to cloud. We don't have to worry about security anymore. What? Oh my goodness. And it was that mentality that Amazon's got it or Azure, Microsoft's got it. So, and it couldn't be further for the truth. One prime example is that, 
we I saw this live. We had to do an IR event with several customers. I had to go hands-on Sentinel in Azure uh, mm-hmm. to try and chase this down. But there was a password stuffing attack, and they were using this legacy POP3 IMAP4 protocol to do that off of ActiveSync. And so they were brute forcing because you couldn't put MFA on it. And so you couldn't secure it. So you would just brute force it. And so employees were cutting their grass and getting password prompts and didn't know what was happening. And so it was loud. It was noisy. People saw it. But Microsoft soon had to take legacy protocols and deprecate them and not allow that to move into Azure. So you got to think, too, is that Azure and, and all these environments built in a secure manner. But what happens when you take insecure stuff to go run it? in a, a, a secure environment such as Azure or something like that. But you get a great point here is the cloud doesn't solve much other than moving it off of my hardware and now I have a, a lower electricity bill, right? But I'm still accountable for protecting, right? I've, I've still got to do the same things. And so I, you know, I see some mindsets that say, we moved to the cloud, I've now got a WAF, everything's great. We're all going to go and have ice oh, yeah. cream for the next six months and it's all great. No, you have to... It's an organism that has to be tuned and cared for continuously because it's always changing. And you can't in this, you know, you think of cloud and now you're multi-cloud. How many of us have multi-cloud environments where our, we are hosting our data in them. one cloud, but I'm also, I've got it all in AWS, but I'm also using Google over here for this. And I'm using, let's say Salesforce for my uh, sales team. And that's in a cloud. And I've got, you mentioned, I think Jira a minute ago. So I'm using an online ticketing system or I'm using uh, service now and online um, mm-hmm. for all this. So now I've got all of my data in these multiple clouds. What do I have? I don't have a cloud problem. I have a supply chain problem. Microsoft pointed that out recently with the whole issue with their keys, right? They still haven't done a full disclosure of what's going on there. Even though they're a cloud provider, and I'm not bashing on Microsoft, it's still as an organization, as a cyber organization, you have to be cognizant that you have supply chain management issues and supply chain risk that are masking themselves as cloud. If you look at the CUECs of what you have to do to secure your own cloud, that's one thing, but that's not where it ends. We have to be vigilant on these other different cloud vendors and where our data exists, where our, we're using our customer data or putting our customer's data they entrusted us in somebody else's cloud. We have to understand what their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses are as well, because yeah. our customers expect that. I tell you that what we see the most common uh, combination here is Azure AWS. Use Azure for your Microsoft-based infrastructure. You could be AD controllers uh, up to Azure. So you could do AD AD authentication with other different applications. So instead of building domain controllers yourself and doing it from the EC2 perspective, like a host and building the Mm -hmm. server and DC promo in it and making it a domain controller, you can actually just get those services from Azure itself. So I'm seeing Azure as part of the Microsoft infrastructure support for companies, and but they're running applications in all AWS, in EC2 instances, AWS. But so you're seeing a combination of the two. You may see a little get move over. They'll do virtual machines on maybe some Azure and not on AWS for some costs, but they're both there. The, in, in the enterprises, the mid-market, and, and even in the enterprises, you have AWS and Azure. There, it's not one or the other. Oh, absolutely. I think that's very common infrastructure amongst the entities that are buying cloud technologies. I see it all the time. And I, I tell people all the time, if you think that your people are not putting your data in Google, you're fooling yourself. It, Google has become almost a shadow IT. And this is not a knock on Google. It's a knock on People, companies not controlling shadow IT and giving proper mm-hmm. direction and control around data management. But you think about it, how many times have you seen organizations where what they profess is we've got this model, like you just said, and, and my, my logical authentication occurs within my Azure and I've got AWS working as storage. Well, by the way, human beings are human beings and 80% of them have a Gmail account. And what are they going to do? Oh, I'm going to go over here and put this in Google Drive. I'm going to share it out. And now we've lost control of our data. So I I see it all the time. And every place that I've gone since cloud's been a thing, all three of them exist to one degree or another. Oh, we had uh, a tool. And when I was at CoFence that the development team put together, it was like this cloud shadow something, another, I forgot the name of it. But what it would do is look for common domain names here related to a common provider. So you could tell the entry mm-hmm. for Slack is the company's name.slack.com. And so what you would do is take that company's name or a variation of it, 
at slack.com and see if there's an actual log on page for it. So it had a way of iterating through where you can find shadow IT. You know, all of a sudden HR has got three cloud services that they're sharing data with. Nobody knew about it because it was part of the payroll system or it was part of something else or some other benefit thing that nobody knew about. And the only way to do it is detect on like cloud connections. Yeah, it's and that's where things like your DLP and your CASB can also come into play to help limit where it can propagate, especially when somebody's using their mobile device and you start to have it go on to that BYOD. We all know that's breach your own device. But you think about all these other different cloud plays that exist out there and that data is leaking in, for most organizations in one way or another. Having those discovery tools and conducting that analysis, it goes, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, understanding what you're putting your, into your SIM and why, that's something that you should put in your SIM is what am I detecting? What am I alerting yeah. on? Do I have somebody now just fire up um, a new Google container and now I've got a, uh, a new GCP out there that, oh, hey, I need to go take a look at that, right? That's the value of, of making those willful decisions, as you mentioned a little while ago about your SIM versus just stuffing anything in there and hoping for the best. Yeah. And I, and I think people who adopted the philosophy of throwing it in there are in the middle of crushing transformations and migrations right now because uh, <laughs> we're seeing it and we're everyone's buzzing about cheaper storage for logging storage. Because for the longest part, I, I remember I would do stuff like look at firewall egress logs and I would rem and I could look at the IP address almost like an error code and a phone number in the US. Okay, a four dot. I've never seen. Where is that at? I'll go look it up in Aaron or one of those registries and go see where the IP address is assigned, what country, and so forth. And I happen to be looking at egress filtering and I see this really weird IP address coming from the inside of my firewall. And it should be only RFC 1918 addresses, my 192, 168, the 10 dots and the 172s. 172 I address space. And it, I should only be seeing that on the inside of my firewall, but not. I'm seeing an external routable address I've never seen before being blocked on the inside. Mm -hmm. Something's not right. And so I go to investigate that. And there was no filter that alerted on that. It was Josh seeing that and saying, that is strange on my network. Why is that happening? Right. And I chased it down. And yeah, it was a Chinese university that they had a BGP route on, and this was in Sarasota, Florida. That's why I always remember Sarasota, Florida. But the branch was there, and there was like an AT&T BGP route that got miscribed wrong, and they were routing international traffic over our branch circuit, which was supposed to be private, MPLS, and yeah. it wasn't, and they routed international traffic. And what we didn't have is the right BGP rules to stop that injection on that route and, and mm -hmm. to allow that. We were able to fix that earlier. But because of that, yeah, I chased it down to the router and we were having attacks from Xingxuan, and I, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it, University in the south of China. And I had just put hardening guidelines on the router. So I just had ACLs on the VTY access list. I just locked down, turned off Telnet, enabled Secure Shell, defined where my jump hosts were, just locked it down, SNMP configurations, all that kind of stuff. And that was done two days. I had pushed that out through Cisco Works. It was done two days before, mm -hmm. I guess, this network change occurred. And yeah, I go get on that router in Sarasota, Florida, and it's being attacked on the PTY lines, it's being attacked on the Telnet. It's just a barrage of it. And what I learned is that those hardening guidelines and those standards saved us. If I wouldn't have had that on, they would own that router. They would own the mm -hmm. rest of it network if i would have just not caught it on the network on the egress filtering i never would have saw it i never would have known that was occurring now i go back and i look at the syslogs and the syslogs are picking it up they're seeing the blocked connection from the chinese university on mm -hmm. the router but there's nothing alert and telling me that's there it's just recording those logs and if i'm unless i'm searching through syslogs all day i'm never gonna never going to see that. And so it's like, how do you take those attacks and have the record of the activity? And then what goes into your SIM for real world versus what goes in for post-exploitation hunting? So I think that's a great use case to say, hey, what non-RFC 1918 address has been hitting the inside interface or something to that effect? And you would run that search over your log. And that needs to be a really cheap, fast solution based on some hunt plans. And to me, you separate the two because they're trying to do hunt in sims and trying to do detect in sims at the same time. And it's not working in many cases. I fully agree. I, I joined an organization and uh, they, they 
used to joke and, and tell me that my, my sign-on bonus was some Russian friends that had been in the network for a few months. And so I came in and we went through the ransomware event and learned those lessons. I had to show the people that were involved and the leadership involved is that you can't just stuff everything into a SIM and hope that it's going to tell you it's going to have some intelligence because it doesn't. It's just a machine that's ingesting code. If you don't have people like you're giving your example, dedicated to monitoring and looking at it and hunting, you're not going to get any value out of it except to tell you what you already know, which is my house burned down. Okay, great. Now I've got a replay. It's like having the neighbor's ring camera to tell me my house burned down. Okay, I know the house burned down. I would have liked to have known that earlier. And that's where you get to your point about hunting versus the just having that data there as an after the fact or as part of an investigation. That's nice. But I think we're seeing more and more that with the, the SIM technology out there, having hunting assumed to be a, a, a really strong uh, component yeah. of a SIM, not a good assumption, right? I think those are different skill sets and you have to use different or complementary technologies. But I think it's important to understand the analogy we use when we're talking to smaller businesses too, what hunt is in the, in the environment. Mm -hmm. So think of it like this is 911 is where every emergency gets thrown in. 911 is the same as a sock here. So mm -hmm. cat goes up the tree, everything gets put it going to 911 services and they have to triage what that is. The same thing with the sock. All the events come into the sock. They have to triage, figure out what's actionable, what's not. When there is some event of severity, it's a being able to identify and then passing it on to an incident handler. The same way in the police analogy, it is the 911 dispatching officers and or detectives to the scene to figure out what's going on at, at that site, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's your incident handlers. Hunting is like the DEA, DEA task force and the FBI putting a sting operation on the ports because they believe that contraband's being smuggled into the port. So they mm -hmm. have a theory. They don't, they're not chasing after everyone calling. They're not worried about everybody calling. They do have their own intelligence gathering capabilities, informants and so forth. Those are not calling 911, right? So they have this theory and they can put limited resources into an area to explore to see if that theory is correct. And very much when that's how we do it in hunting. We have a whole data set in which we know some of these use cases are not meant to be real time in the sim. It doesn't support the real time detection right. Uh, mission. And if I did bring it in, it would eat a lot of costs and it doesn't give me greater contextualization. But I do need to have a low cost storage solution to move those logs to it. Mm -hmm. So I can run these post-exploitation hunt cases and look stuff for that. Like for instance, I freed up a one customer, it was a big pharmaceutical company. A third of their data was all ASA and firewall traffic coming from their OT network. Mm -hmm. It was eating up the SIM. The EPS was going through the roof of it. But the value was really low because what it caught was SQL Slammer stuff in the past, which would be like ports, port scanning and going from all through the ephemeral port ranges and so forth, really loud-based scanning. And so instead of putting that there, we put into an S3 bucket and just use Athena to search across it. And it saved tremendously. We were able to pull a thousand, we were able, I forget all the, the exact details, but we were pull a lot of, able to pull a lot of that traffic and that data off of that SIM and move it into a hunt type platform and uh -huh. because it didn't need it for real-time uh, detection, but hunt cases, it was perfect for. Absolutely. Think about if you don't have the luxury of having a platform like that where you can out offload it to, how many times in your career have you had to pivot and start hunting in the source whatsoever that it was? You had to go, yeah. instead of in your SIM, I had to go to the firewall. I had to go to the proxy. I had to go to the broker. And I had to look through those logs because I couldn't do it in the SIM, right? I think you make yeah. a great point about how the SIM has its place and it's a value that it can drive, but it only goes so far before you need to move into something else that has better contextualized searching and better search capabilities that, to hunt for those clues. Because really, that's what you're doing is, is you're investigating based off of clues and, and data points, but that's not really where the SIM excels. Which is why we we focus a lot more on using UABA type capabilities for the sim mm -hmm. let it do good things for user behavior awareness and identity access management that kind of stuff i think they really excel in that and others they don't 
And that's definitely some part. Now, tell me this. I have a nephew that I've been training in cybersecurity. I think it's so hard if I look at how I came up and trying to replicate that. I didn't have cybersecurity tracks when I came up. It was all IT at first. So it was Mm -hmm. network and systems and so forth. And you ask, how can you get the next generation to know the difference between IR and hunt and all the things we just talked about, right? It's one thing to be able to explain what a port or a protocol is to somebody and they can regurgitate that. But really, how do you teach them how to orchestrate all this? Because in many ways, I feel that's the most difficult part, especially when you start moving up in the ranks, is that how do I make all this stuff work together now for short term and in the future and continue to provide the, the business the protection it needs? Some of these they just can't teach in a textbook. Yeah. And we came from the old, the paper era, right? We get a book, we get a manual, we print something out and read it. You have it. to love the road. I think that there's two kinds of audiences that are coming up that you want to help them grow their career. There are those that are younger and doing it on their own. They don't have any support, any budget in there. How do I learn on the cheap? And the answer to that is YouTube. Is There is a wealth of information out there if you want to grind through it and go to those resources. You can go to the CISA. I love SANS. Yeah, you can go to the Cloud Security Alliance. SANS is, we work closely with them being a very valuable customer to my organization. SANS is a great resource, especially if you have a company that can help you. And then there are companies like the one that I work for at Litmus, where if from a B2B perspective, if your company has those resources to provide it for up and coming analysts or people who want to start at the ground floor. Maybe you're in finance like I was years ago. Maybe you're in IT and you got some interest. If your company provides something, a corporate learning platform like a Pluralsight or a Litmus, go there and look for that content there. There's a lot of good information in, in those platforms. And I can't stress enough how high quality the training you can get is from a company like SANS or even going to OWASP itself. There's a, a plethora of information if you're looking at application, web application security, and that's your interest. Plethora of information of the projects at OWASP and all of the data that's out there that you can leverage yourself in. There's a lot more avenues that you can go down these days uh, than there were years ago, which it used to be pull a manual or ask somebody to make a copy of something. I'm yeah. sure I'm not the only one who said, hey, can you burn me a copy of that? You don't have to do that anymore. It's hey, Do you days, remember, it's I, I remember when I first started off in this field, it was everyone, nobody respected information security. You were the antivirus guru and you're the firewall guy. That's all you did. And you did the passwords on that. And then uh-huh. when I first started in cyber in 2001, when I dedicated my career towards it, that was exactly what we did. We did password resets. We did mainframe resets. And we handled the antivirus and the firewall. And But just to flash forward, when I left the, that place seven years later, we had a, a team of 12, a security operations center, we had a SIM. And just to see where the industry has gone, we've built where we are now. The only problem is I think we overcompensated. We all knew we needed a SIM. And then the mentality of just throw everything at the SIM and, and the challenges that causes is is in many ways tremendous. I'll tell you one a story I remember where there was definitely a going back and forth between us and the business from a cybersecurity perspective is, and I, I don't remember if it was at Wells Fargo I was at or Whitney, one of the banks, but it was that they wanted to expose the account numbers in the logon portal. So when you log on, it will see your account number and your routing number, right? And back then we were just super panicked about that because if you had the account and the routing number, you could just print a check and then issue check fraud off the top of it. And you all you have to do is have the right micer and they already have a tax for that. But at the same time, all the business guys are going, we're getting inundated with calls for what their account and routing number is. This is the most common asked thing. They should be able to have step off authentication to understand what their account was. And you know what? We thought about it for a minute. And you go, okay, if you're willing to risk the the possibility of an additional fraud from a checking perspective, and you're saying that the inconvenience is causing upsells and we're having business problems because of that inconvenience, and you're willing to accept potentially in the higher risk of this, then we're fine. And we did, and we permitted it, and they were able to get it, and it solved the major problem. We had a lot of traffic coming into the call center and everything for finding out their account and their routing number. And we were just so adamant to shut it down that we overcompensated for the times where we were at, and Mm -hmm. security needed to back down. So it's not always we're there for the company. We need to be able to do this, and sometimes there is a give and take. 
And Dale, I'm so, glad, uh, I'm so glad you could join me. Unfortunately, I ran out of time here, man. I told you these <laughs> go fast, right? You could you start talking, you start enjoying it, and uh, it sits back and it's a good time. But unfortunately, we ran out of time. Any parting words or or things you think is great for our audience to know? If you're up and coming, you want to continue progressing in, in this career path, you want to be something in cybersecurity, get a mentor. I can't overstate how important it is to have a quality mentor, someone who understands the journey you've been on and can help you in your journey. Uh, I think that mentoring is something that, as we've seen the evolution of this industry, it's really now become a thing. I think it's very important to have those outreaches, especially as we are more isolated in these work from home environments these days. Having the outreach to have a mentor to help you grow your career is hugely valuable. Yeah. I agree. And guys, if anybody is or anybody on the show is looking for cybersecurity services, always look up deepseas.com, manage detection and response. We also do SIM implementations, migrations, log analysis, data lakes, a lot of stuff with that. We also have a, a really smart team of people who do data analytics for SIM packages, our hunt packages, and security architecture engineering. So until next time, stay secure and everybody have a good day. Thanks, Josh. Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.